Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi there, it's Julia Louis-Dreyfus. You may know me from my podcast called Wiser Than Me, where I talk to older women and get their wisdom from the front lines of life. I was amazed by how many people told me our show made them look forward to getting older, which is why I'm here to talk about season two of the show. Sally Field, Billie Jean King, Beverly Johnson, Ina Garten, Bonnie Ray, just to name a few. All hail old women. Wiser Than Me season two is out now from Lemonada Media. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Welcome back. This is Sirius XM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. I am so pleased to welcome our next guest to the show. He's a man who wears a lot of hats, um, and he uses them in the best ways of public service. Carl Sherman has been a transformational leader in faith and government and in business as well. Uh, he's a man of strong faith. He serves in the role of senior pastor in the Church of Christ. He was the first African-American mayor of DeSoto, Texas in 2010, reelected in 2013. Under his leadership, the city launched an aggressive focus on generating economic development, and he was elected in November of 2018 to serve as a member of the Texas House of Representatives. In the legislature, he was reappointed to the Corrections Committee for a third consecutive term, and he's serving on the new committee, Land and Resource Management. He's been a trailblazer in politics and public administration, and the Dallas Urban League recognized him as one of the most promising leaders of the 21st century. And right now, Carl Sherman is running for the Senate. It's a great pleasure to welcome Mr. Carl Sherman to SiriusXM. Hello, Representative. It's a pleasure to have you. It's a pleasure to be on your show, John, if you were saying, and I've been looking forward to this opportunity uh, to be engaged in conversations that are relevant to what's happening uh, to people in America and across the world. Well, no one's ever accused me of saying anything relevant, but I'll do my best for our time together. sir. <laughs> thank you. you. You know, you had such a successful career in business. You had a lot of experience as an entrepreneur and a pastor as well before your work in the house. The most basic question is, you were doing fine. What drew you to public service as a representative? Well, I really don't like politics. And, uh, you know, so it's interesting that I am in this. And you you uh, ask what drew me to it. I, I mm. felt led by God. Uh, to do this. While I don't like politics, I love people, and I love policy, and I love the Lord. And so for me, it's about shaping policy, whether it be legislation or ordinances uh, that comports to humanity, uh, that, that really addresses the issues and concerns of folks who are not allowed into the room, much less a seat at the table. Well, that's what's impressed me about you, sir, as a public figure who actually quotes scripture, because let's be honest, you're not out there pushing a lot of right wing talking points that have nothing to do with what the character of Jesus says in the Bible. You are a 
social justice progressive who actually goes by what the gospel says. You gave a very powerful speech where you said that you were running to defend all Texans whose rights are under assault, especially the underrepresented. And you, you, you did my favorite thing. You referenced Jesus in Matthew 25 to serve those in need, saying, we have a nation of leaders who have forgotten the least of these. What good are you if you will not concern yourself with those who God is concerned about? I stood up in my I stood up and clapped for that line. And it's so true. I find that so often our right wing brothers and sisters who are the loudest to talk about Jesus or use him as a prop are often the last to be aware of what's in the Beatitudes or Matthew 25. Yeah, you you hit it right on the nose. Uh, You know, let me give you an example, John. There was one day during the regular session. Uh, where one member stood up and did the prayer from the Sermon on the Mount found Mm -hmm. in Matthew chapter 6. The very first bill that was laid out on the house floor, right after he prayed this prayer, was a bill that outlawed homelessness in Texas. HB 1925, you can't make this stuff up. So if they had just turned the page two chapters over, they would have found the one that we claim to follow saying, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head, Matthew chapter 8, verse 20. So we have gone so far from what Jesus would do and we have our legislative priorities that go contrary to what he says. Absolutely. And, you know, when, when we talk about the people Jesus say in Matthew 25, that individuals and nations, he gives his marching orders to care for the poor, care for the sick, welcome the stranger. That's a whole other one. But then he also talks about the importance of caring for those who are incarcerated. And you're focusing on five key priorities, as I understand this year, of which criminal justice reform is also a national issue of significant discussion. I'm curious, what kind of reform would you like to see happen in the state of Texas in terms of the way the system functions? Well, one thing in regards to criminal justice, and I have been identified by my works as one who is a fighter for social justice. What I believe we need to do is one thing is have parity in sentencing you know for those folks who say i don't do politics i don't do politics politics does you all day every day when you can have someone like an ethan couch who killed four people and was sentenced to affluenza that was his sentence affluenza So he received no sentence in our prison system, TDCJ. He was given 10 years probation. He fled the country, violating his probation. Mm-hmm. We spent all sorts of resources apprehending him, bringing him back to the country, only to give him affluence again, two more years mm. of, of uh, probation. Now, I've got a constituent, a father, who lives in my district, I cover Dallas, Grand Prairie, DeSoto, Cedar Hill, Lancaster, uh, Hutchins, Wilmer, Sigaville, uh, Ball Springs, and Ovilla. And I got to make sure I list them all because somebody <laughs> will call me and say, you didn't mention our city. <laughs> but he has a son who lived in Grayson County, which is in Sherman, Texas, ironically. Mm. 
mm-hmm. and his son didn't leave the city, didn't leave the county, didn't leave the country. He didn't even leave his apartment. He was arrested for uh, evading arrest and sentenced to 50 years in prison. By the way, he didn't kill anybody. He's now in our prison for 50 years. So, so I want to see parity in sentencing. If you look at someone's gender and their ethnicity, and let's make sure that we have parity, similar to what you do when you're going to sell a house. Mm-hmm. You look at the comps to see the valuations, and you're going to have to stay in that range. Republicans right now have not even allowed me to get a hearing on that legislation, of course. It stands to reason. I mean, this is the same group that is against DEI. That's right. And yet, so so when it comes to uh, enrollment in our universities, they don't want to consider DEI, but they also don't want to take away privilege from those who are privileged to be able to get into those schools. Of course. That's the way it always plays out, isn't it? They just, they're never upset about actual racism, but they're very upset at anti-racism. They're very upset at any methods or techniques to try to push back on racism. More upset at Colin Kaepernick's knee than Derek Chauvin's. Exactly. If you were saying that puts it very crystal clear. And, and, you know, sometimes we think that our views are translucent. We think the way that we see it is the way it is, but it's just our perception. And unfortunately, we have a group of people who think that their thoughts on this are fair and it's balanced and it's the way it should be. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. I'm John Fugel saying this is Progress After Dark. Let me shift a bit, because I don't think you can talk about any kind of racial injustice without talking about poverty. And as you know, one in eight Texans experience food insecurity and it makes food access an important issue for many in your state, particularly those who live in food deserts where it's hard to get fresh produce. I'm curious about the proposed Texas Grocery Access Investment Fund program. I've been reading up on it a bit, but how would that program address this matter? Well, it starts with uh, identifying, first of all, those food deserts. 
as you pointed out, there are food deserts. It it is just like we've gerrymandered our political system. We've redlined our communities. And so these communities do not have uh, a balanced uh, source of uh, commerce in their communities. And it would also invest in those areas to ensure that we have uh, the things needed to attract grocers there. It's unfortunate uh, that we have to have incentives in order to do this to go contrary uh, to what the business community is doing. One of the major grocers here in Texas, uh, one of their executives, I was on a panel speaking about the food deserts, and this executive said to me privately, you know, their health outcomes would be better if they would just stop eating those chips. I thought to myself, how insensitive are you? Your grocery chain doesn't have one single store in those impoverished areas. And yet you tell them the same thing. Well, you got to get population density is one thing. Or you got to get higher incomes. And yet, as I travel across this great state running to be the next U.S. Senator to replace Ted Cruz, what I found in these small rural towns is that same grocery store, major chain that that is in cities where the population is less than 5,000, in some cases less than 2,000. These are general law type A and type B cities that do not even have their own charters. So don't tell me that you can't put grocery stores there. You just don't want to put exactly. grocery stores there. Exactly. For so many wide swaths of this country, especially in rural areas, if people want to get food, they got to buy it. And you know this, either at the dollar store or the gas station, which means there's right. not going to be any kind of fresh produce or fresh meat in this diet. There'll be fast food. And you'd think that people who talk about Jesus a lot would prioritize this sort of issue. I mean, it does affect all of us, but the poor don't vote. So, you know, I, I, I'm so I'm so pleased that you are taking your spiritual background and your capitalism background because this is a capitalist issue. If these folks get sick from inadequate nutrition, they're going to show up uninsured at emergency rooms and the local taxpayer will pick up the bill. Isn't it isn't it representative just good business? to not have hungry poor in the state of Texas? It is good business and it's good spiritually too, because when we do that, God reciprocates and he blesses us. You know, Acts chapter two taught us that they sold all that they had to share with those who did not have. Now that's That's contrary to our system. I had a Republican, a very prominent Republican in North Texas, come up to me and say after a a panel discussion that we had, and I'm often uh, called on to uh, speak to various business groups. I'm a former Rotarian, former Rotary Club president, and and so we're speaking, and and I'm just going to speak uh, and be the same no matter what room I'm in. Uh, I think uh, that you should not placate Uh, to the point that you lose your values and your sense of principles uh, just to curtail to a certain group or audience. Uh, So you're going to change how you talk. I don't believe that. So this particular prominent Republican says to me, hey, you know, that Jesus thing is really working for you. You He thinks it's a strategy. 
Well, it the is Lord for them. Is why, why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? <laughs> I mean, that's that, the Lord is my gimmick. That's the GOP. Well, you know, I just believe that we have a spiritual responsibility and a fiduciary responsibility to understand that to do good is good and it makes sense economically. Because right now, we have over 5 million Texans who lack health insurance. And so each year, when you combine all of our hospitals together, the uncompensated hospital care costs are $27 billion a year. In Dallas County alone, with our Parkland system, our health care system for the county, for those who don't have insurance especially, we have about $1.4 billion in uncompensated hospital care. So that means wow. that your hospital systems can't sustain that, especially in the rural area. While all it takes is Republican legislators being willing to vote to expand Medicaid, and then Texans would realize the $10 billion a year that we pay in mm -hmm. taxes to the federal government would actually come back. But no, we've made this about politics, and now 11 other Republican-led states have already denounced their old ways and said, we're going to expand Medicaid, but Texas still lags behind. Still. And Texas still has one in five Texans who don't have health insurance that costs business because that means when someone gets sick because they've had this illness for longer, yes, sir. they mm -hmm. have to stay home. And that means that that industry loses its production from that particular individual. And when one in five are experiencing that lack of insurance, you're going to have some huge problems here. And we do cost wise. This this is why I'm so thrilled you're running for Senate. And this platform is open to you anytime, Representative, because we would love to get more eyes on what you're doing. You know, I mean, it was, what, 2018 when Beto O'Rourke electrified the grassroots, came within three percentage points of beating Ted Cruz. I respect you as a man of faith trying to drive the Ted Cruz's out of the Capitol. What's it going to take to unseat him this time around? You know, I was talking to uh, Beto O'Rourke two days ago. And we were, we were talking about this campaign and, and how important it is. Uh, he was excited uh, after I announced my candidacy. Uh, he and I uh, actually had dinner. He and his wife, Amy, came over to my hotel. Uh, we had dinner for about three hours. I wanted to get his insight uh, before our food got there. He said, you know, I think you should get in. Uh, and uh, he called me after I got in and, and expressed his enthusiasm for me getting in, though he's not, uh, he's not uh, backing anyone during the okay. primary. Sure. Uh, but, uh, you know, for us, knowing how close he got and understanding that that was not a, uh, it's, it's not a benchmark for us. That's right. In, in other words, uh, how close he got and the number of votes that he got, those votes are not in a bank for us to start again <laughs> and, and know we start from there. No, it's a watermark. 
So we know the elasticity of the electorate if there is a candidate that they would get behind. But Republicans will play their same strategy, John, and that they've been playing for over 30 years. It will be simply this, good versus evil. When we get to the general election, that's how they do it, good versus evil. And that's we, it. on their talk radio, are not considered Democrats. We are demon rats. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, those good Christians, they, they never run out of slurs. You're not a real patriot until you're called a globalist rhino cock groomer, I guess, at this point. So, I mean, we all know what you're up against, Representative, and, and uh, there's a lot of ugliness out there. And that's why it means so much to me that you're running such a, a positive campaign that that blends the best of public service and spirituality and, you know, capitalism with empathy. I know the early voting in the Texas primaries gets underway, uh, I, I believe, in less than a month. The primary is on March 5th. What is the best way, sir, for our listeners to follow you, learn more about your campaign, and donate to be a part of this movement? CarlSherman.com. CarlSherman.com. In 19 days, folks will be able to vote early, beginning February 20th. And Super Tuesday, as you said, is March 5th. Uh, and, you know, what I'm about to say it's not a theory. It's not a hypothesis. We've seen it play out in Georgia. It's harder for them to play that good versus evil when your nominee is a pastor, a former mayor, <laughs> city nice. manager, state representative, businessman. It's harder when it's a pastor. That's and it. I have pastored for over 16 years as a senior pastor. Six of those years, John, were at two churches, one all white the other predominantly African-American, preaching five sermons a Sunday and two on Wednesday. And the only reason the one was all white was because Michelle was not going to go to five different services. So I'm excited <laughs> about uh, the, the group that we have that has uh, been supportive and we're growing. So if they go to carlsherman.com, uh, they can figure out how they can help. Any support they can give would be appreciated. I'm not supported by Washington lobbyists or right political on. insiders. My campaign has never been about raising millions of dollars, but it's about raising millions of Texans. We've got work to do to ensure that there is equality, fairness, and equity in Texas. And imagine, we will do just as Georgia did. I'm so excited about getting to the U.S. Capitol with the Lord's will, we will be able to work together with Pastor Warnock. And there are some things legislatively that I'm looking forward to doing to bring humanity and sanity to governance and bring humility and civility to politics. Right on. Carl Sherman, it's a pleasure to have you on our show. Please feel free to come back anytime as the campaign goes on. This platform is always open to you. And thank you, sir, for your service. Thank you. Thank you, John. You got it. We'll be right back. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. 
I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey all, Glenn Kirshner here. So friends, I hope you'll join me on my audio podcast, Justice Matters. You care about ethics in government, criminal justice reform, a conflict-free federal judiciary? I thought so. On Justice Matters, we take on issues involving the need to reform our government and its institutions. And we talk about real, achievable reform. I hope you'll join us. Look for Justice Matters wherever you usually get your podcasts. Welcome back. I'm John Fugelsang. I'm I'm so excited about this. I'll let me know if this intro is all right because I've you're a very daunting person to do an intro for. It's either going to be too lofty or not lofty enough. But Bill Bradley is a hero to many for many reasons. Olympic gold medalist, hero of the greatest New York Knicks team ever to hit the court, American senator, one of the few politicians I was ever excited to support for president, and everything he's written, uh, just the rarest of politicians, a terrific writer. His books include Life on the Run, Time Present, Time Past, a memoir, and Values of the Game. Now he's doing something I'm not sure any politician has ever done, and it's one of my favorite forms of theater, a solo show. Rolling Along is a beautifully structured monologue where the senator runs through the major events of his life and how they made him the kind of civic leader he is. It's been filmed in the theater on West 42nd Street by documentary filmmaker Michael Tolan, who did that great Hank Aaron Chasing the Dream documentary. It's co-produced by Frank Oz and New York Knicks superfan Spike Lee. Bill Bradley, welcome back. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure, pleasure. to always be on your show. I thank you. I I really loved the show you did at SiriusXM. It was a pleasure to be a part of it. And honestly, I I didn't still know, do it. I know you do. It's wonderful. Every Sunday, it's it's great. Eleven a.m. and and channel one twenty four. There it is. I got it in. You got it in. But <laughs> I love your show on SiriusXM because it is a show without any flag waving that always makes me feel better about being an American every time I watch it. Well. We want to tell the stories of people in the country and, uh, you know, a couple kinds of stories, people who do unusual things in their community, um, selfless things, uh, people who have unusual jobs, and occasionally whoever I want to interview, it's my fancy. But I think you've done a lot of that with this show as well. It's it's your story, but it's really a story about America. It's about a, a lot of people, and I, I, there's very few people who've ever served who could do this, and there's fewer who could do it well. I mean, I'm blown away by how good it is. When did this idea first germinate? I mean, you've written books, but to actually yeah. recite on stage. Well, I um, I gave my political papers to Princeton, right? And they did an oral history. And they interviewed about 60 people who had some relationship to me over the years about what was it like, blah, blah, blah. And so I invited all 60 to a reception and 40 showed up. And so I stood up and told stories about each one of the 40. 
And afterwards, one of the 40, Manny Eisenberg, mm-hmm. a friend of 50 years, has produced 72 plays on Broadway. All in Neil Simon's plays. Right. Came up to me and said, sounds a little bit like Hal Holbrook doing Mark Twain. You ought to work something That's up. That's what I thought of, because Mark <laughs> Twain, I mean, for the last part of his life, he made most of his money doing monology. Yeah. I mean, he made more money going and speaking his work than actually publishing. Yeah. And he said, you ought to work something up. So for the next year, I wrote. Uh, you know, the first draft of uh, Rolling Along. And then after I wrote it, uh, I took it to 20 cities across the country. And it was uh, a manuscript, and I would read it, and it would be in a <clears throat> the Zach Theater in yeah. uh, Austin, Texas, uh, you did or Marin readings. County. This or, is what I do. You did uh, stage I did it readings. in law firms. <laughs> I, I did it at the commissary at uh, Warner Brothers' lot. I right? heard that. <laughs> <laughs> And afterwards, people would offer their opinions, and I'd take notes, and then uh, it evolved that way. And at the commissary, one of the people afterwards came up, and it was Mike Tolan. He said, I think this could be a film. And he was uh, the second angel. The first angel was Manny Eisenberg, then Mike Tolan. And then other angels appeared along the way. And then COVID hits. I mean, you're developing the piece. You're doing... open readings not really a stage yeah. reading you're you're just presenting the piece getting comfortable with the language yourself and then COVID hits did you did it feel like the project was going to drift or were you still focused no on it, it actually deepened in yeah. during COVID because uh, I I began to think well what is it really about and how do I feel about it and I also had tried to reach Dan Sullivan who is a great director during the uh, pan- during the time up to the pandemic, but I couldn't reach him. <laughs> and during the pandemic, he's stuck in upstate New York. I'm stuck in New York City. And so we started talking. He made some suggestions uh, on uh, various things, and that helps. He was, a, he was another angel that showed up. And then um, I ran into my old friend, um, Spike Lee, uh, who I'd known for a number of years, and I said, hey, Spike, I've done this thing. I'd like to, uh, by this time I had memorized it, right? Yeah. And so I said, I'd like to come over and do it for you at your office. He said, well, well come on over. I said, what do you need? And I said, how about a glass of water and a stool? And he said, okay. And I, so I did it for Spike one-on-one, hour and a half, and he had tears in his eyes at the end. And so I thought, hmm, maybe I got something here. And so once you've memorized something, as you know, uh, you can't uh, not do it. Can't. And so you got to do it every day. And so every day at 3.30 in the rec room of my apartment building, I did the show. For and, whom? On your own or with uh, someone watching? It got around and different people showed up. Sometimes two people, sometimes 10. Sometimes. Can you do it on your own? Do you have the discipline to stand oh, yeah, there yeah, by, on your own and recite for 90 minutes straight? Because uh, I, I need a body there for something no, that long. No, I imagine people. So I can imagine the audience. I, can, <laughs> I see faces. <laughs> anyway, I hear voices. Yeah. Okay, we won't go there. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, I, uh, and so one day, two people came in, one of whom was Frank Oz, mm. who heard about it from uh, another person who had been to one of these 3.30 rehearsals. And afterwards, he said, you know, I believe a lot of what you said, and I want to help you. And so he was another angel. So Spike Lee, then Frank Oz. And the final angel came two weeks before the Tribeca Film Festival. Now it's a film. And I began the film at that point with Van Morrison's song 
called uh, uh, And the Healing Has Begun. Oh, yeah. You know the song. And um, two weeks before Tribeca, his agent calls up and says, Van doesn't give you permission to use his song. <sighs> two weeks before Tribeca. What am I going to do? That's so, peak Van Morrison, by the way. Can I just point that out? Whatever, yeah. whatever. So I get it. It turned out for the best. So I got on the phone, called my buddy Steve Van Zandt. <laughs> the He's East an Street angel Band, for this show. You yeah. know? And he was the last angel. And I said, hey, Steve, I need, a, I need a song. And he said, well, Bruce wrote a song in the early 80s called Summer at Signal Hill. Uh, that might work. And so I got it, played it. It did work. So I called him back and said, hey, Steve, it works. Um, so I have your legal permission to use this? He said, oh, Bruce and I sold our catalog to Sony two years ago. <laughs> so I had to go through Sony. And with John Landau's help, I actually managed to get Sony to do it. And they licensed it to me. And there it is. It opens, you, the, it opens the show. You kept and it in ultimately, Jersey. ultimately, it was a nice thing to have. New Jersey to the rescue. It really is. You know? And, <laughs> and Steve to the rescue. Because I'd shown it to Steve six months earlier. Yeah. I'd sent him a link. So he knew it, and um, he made the exact right call. And so all along the way, all these angels showed up and made their contributions, as well as the hundreds of people over the 20 cities who reacted to uh, the show. Well, thank God for Van Morrison being so cranky. But but that's how you did it. I mean, you, you built it, you learned it, and you grew it. And I'm sure the version that made it to the screen was a lot different than the first version you ever read. Uh, that's for sure. It's a very interesting. Uh, I did the version. I liked it. I did it. Then I memorized it. And uh, then I figured, well, let's do a reading for, so this does maybe let me do it for a group. And so I got a group and 60 people from around the country. Mm. They're listening to it. I'm watching them on TV listen to it, right? And out of that 60, they winded it down to 15 as a focus group. And the guy that ran the focus group said, well, what do you think this is about? And the answers were, it's about all of us. It's about love of the country. It's about love of the game. It's about perseverance. It's about uh, uh, forgiveness. It's about joy and sadness yeah. and triumph and defeat. It's about life. And uh, really, it is. It's, and I thought, they got it. They really understand what this is. And then they said a vote. Okay, let's vote. Where do you rank this? And it ranked below the average for a documentary or a hmm. film. And the guy said, well, why? And he said, too long. And the other 50% of them didn't know who the hell I was. Who's this guy up there talking about his life? So that made me change two things. <clears throat> I killed 20 minutes of my friends, yeah. 20 minutes of my children. Yeah. Cut it yep. from an hour and 50 to an hour and 20, and then begin with the, the bio so that people see the video bio. Wow, they made you work. That's yeah, amazing. It was fun. It I was, mean, but they, they helped it. They were, in a way, they were all angels too. But that's end, it. Yeah. Contributing. It was a real, I say, team effort. No, if you just do what your <laughs> friends like, you're going to open it with a, a horrible show. It's true. Yeah. You know, you open it commandingly and not with a joke, not with a routine, but explaining when your interest became your passion. Yeah. Playing basketball. You begin and, and, by bouncing a ball. Yeah. In the backyard, in the driveway, in the playground. And then you start shooting. Your knees are bent, your elbows under the ball, your eyes are on the rim. You shoot and you follow through. I don't know when my interest turned to passion, but I was very young. <laughs> keep, there your it is. keep your fingertips clean. <laughs> yeah. The details 
are so beautiful. And, and, and that's what I knew in the very beginning. This is not some routine. You're not here to tell stories. This is, you've, you've written a beautiful piece. And I appreciate how it began very humbly. I think one of the most striking parts for a lot of people who followed your career, and one of the most moving parts for me is your teenage conversion to evangelism. Mm -hmm. And it showed me that even as a teenager, you were curious and you were a seeker and that even then decency was important. But it seems like the same love of service, the same love that led you to embrace evangelism as a teenager, led you out of it not too long thereafter. Yeah, for, I'd say, six years, I was uh, an evangelical deeply and committedly. And um, it uh, it was the center of my life in many ways. And uh, over time, I began to think about God's love as much as God's judgment. <laughs> and ultimately, that led me uh, to move on. But I wanted to be honest about that because that played a very important role. Because one of the themes in this uh, film is belonging, right? Yeah. I mean, I was the banker's son in a small town in Missouri growing up. Didn't feel like I, I, you know, I wasn't like the factory workers' kids. Yeah. I was different. And in a Princeton, I was evangelical in a preeminent secular university. So I didn't belong. I was different. So that feeling uh, really uh, was early on uh, part of my life. And of course, then when I got with the Knicks and we won the championships and I was with an extraordinary group of people, it was kind of the place I finally belonged. And and, and that, I want to talk about that, but w with the evangelical period of your life, I felt that it's one of those things that gave you empathy. You didn't turn your back on religion or faith or Jesus or God. It was this subset. And I felt watching it, it was the time you spent with the evangelicals that let you as a senator see them as people, that let you still be driven to work with them they were humanized for you. And even though you had left that club, you could not be adversarial to them. There is no question about that. Uh, and you have real insight to observe that. Um, and not anybody else has. <laughs> and the point I, I, is, that, where I come from. the point is there's the, the, that whether you are Catholic or evangelical, or you don't believe, or you're Jewish, or you're uh, Hindu, or whatever. You share a common humanity. Yeah. And the key is to understand and see that common humanity and have enough curiosity about the other person to really respect them and want to learn about them. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back after this. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. 
Philo has shows, movies, and live TV for just $25 a month. You can even try it for free with their seven-day free trial. No contracts, no commitments, no hassles, just a better way to watch TV. Never miss a minute of shows like the hit docuseries Where is Wendy Williams or classics such as Friends. If you can't get enough TV, then there's no better way to watch. Philo has more than 70 channels like BET, MTV, and AMC. And the best part? You can try it yourself with their seven-day free trial. Sign up today at philo.tv slash poppods. That's P-H-I-L-O dot TV slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month. Welcome back. You have a great story about the Russians in the 64 Olympics. That's the first big laugh of the show. But I love your description of the Knicks. The greatest team, greatest game, greatest city in the world. And and the first time you ever felt you belonged, you say in the show, I felt at one with my world. And it's so moving to learn how deeply important it was to you to forge these friendships with all the guys on the team, but but particularly your African-American colleagues. Yeah. And and it seems to me your desire to bond with your black teammates in basketball as a young man was seemingly in the same vein as your desire to bond with your white conservative colleagues in the Senate a generation later. No question. But what did it mean to you? What it was the it was the racism that drove you out <clears throat> of the church you were in when you were a young person and suddenly you had black brothers. Yeah. No, I mean, I learned so much more from my African-American teammates than they learned from me. It was an extraordinary uh, kind of relationship. <laughs> I remember I was a rookie, and um, uh, Willis Reed, who was our yeah. dominant center and who was also the, uh, the uh, captain, um, he would call me only by my last name. And that bothered me. And so I said, hey, Willis. I stopped him one day. I think we were in the airport somewhere. And I said, hey, Willis, how about calling me by my first name? Well, he's 6'9", 240, looks down with a big Willis Street smile and says, okay, Bradley. <laughs> in other words, I'm boss here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was, uh, it was a, really an important and wonderful group of people. We're still friends today. And it's not only because we went to the mountaintop, but because it was the kind of people that we were. Yeah. And I learned an awful lot about uh, the America of my African-American teammates. I mean, I tell a number of stories about it. I mean, Dick Barnett tells me a story of his Tennessee State team, all black, winning the national championship, flying back to Nashville, and going directly from the airport to a lunch counter sit-in where he had to have the discipline not to respond when yeah. white people spit on him. Right, or the African American rookie from uh, Mississippi who tells me uh, he'll always vote because uh, for 150 years nobody in his family could vote. Or there's a story of Cassie Russell coming to a, a practice in Detroit, and he's late, and so Red Holzman finds him. We had a rule: you're late, you get fined. He's fined. We get into the practice about two minutes into the practice, about, no, about 10 minutes into the practice. He's in a fight with a white rookie. And Willis steps in and says, you know, break it up. And Cassie says, Uncle Tom. And Willis says, Uncle Tom, well, this Uncle Tom's going to kick some ass if you do that again. And only later did I discover that Cassie's lateness and foul mood came from being stopped by Michigan State Police on a drive down Fenton Arbor to Michigan and forced to lie spread eagle on the hood of the car while his back seat and trunk were searched. Yeah. So 
you, you know, on one level, these stories um, drew a, a picture of America. Uh, on another level, these were deep and uh, loving friendships. And I tell the story in there about Cassie. You know, mm -hmm. we we were com we competed against each other. I I mean, I my first year I was a guard too slow. I was failing. Second year, Cassie broke his ankle, and the coach moved me to forward, which was a natural position. And team gelled, and I played. We won a lot of games. The thirty thirty nine last thirty nine games, and so the starting team gelled. The following year, Cassie wanted to get his job back, and I wanted to keep it. So we had this tremendous competition. So because of that competition, until he was traded two years later to San Francisco, we could never really um, um, become friends. And so f flash forward, it's 40 years later, a 43 union of the 70 championship Nick team. And Cassie, uh, I, I walk in the room, and there's Cassie. And I feel tension. I think, what the hell is that tension? What is that? What? It's 40 years later. What is this? Yeah. Then next night, we get to the garden early. We're the only ones in the room. And Cassie comes over to me and says, Bill, I'm a Christian preacher in South Carolina now. And I can't preach my best sermon if there's anything heavy on my heart. So if I ever did anything or said anything in those years that hurt or offended you, would you forgive me? And I said, Cassie, of course. If I ever did or said anything that hurt or offended you, would you forgive me? He said, of course. And we hugged, and 40 years of tension disappeared. The power of forgiveness. That's what this show is about. I mean, you say what I came to understand is that I will never understand what it's like to be black. And I think a lot of folks who watch this film of your solo show on, on Max are going to really find a lot of resonance with the story of your Aunt Bub, who you loved very deeply, who had black people in her life that she loved very much. She doesn't seem to have been a bigot, but she was a racist. And I have those same people in my family, both sides. Sure. And um, that's the challenge, isn't it? To see things clearly and those who love you love, continue to love, but understand that they're not down the same road you are. You say, how could these two sides of my aunt live in the same person? Well, I mean, the point is, she she didn't, um, she described African Americans uncharitably, right? Yeah. And, and you know, and, um, and so. Uh, which is how at, she was raised, yeah, which is where she came from. But then at her funeral, the most moving tribute was a song sung by an African American friend of hers, the wife of a local doctor. Yeah. And so these were the two sides of my aunt, the one that used the language. And the one that had the African American sang, friend that sang at her funeral, and both of those sides, how can I reconcile those two sides? Well, you can't unless you're able to go to a deeper human level, and that's what I try to do in this uh, film. I try to create circumstances where people will see situations that will allow them, in their own lives, to go to a deeper level. Remember the focus group where it's about all of us. Yeah. And as you, you've said, you know, you saw yourself a couple of times in this uh, show. And I think, I hope other people will too. Because my goal, I realized, you know, why did I, why did I have that Van Morrison song? It wasn't because I'm a big fan of Van Morrison, right, at the beginning. <laughs> it was because of the title. And the yeah. healing has begun. 
because we live in such a divided country, and I hope that this can have a healing effect on people who see it and um, get us to a deeper level. Well, that's why maybe my favorite part of the entire show is your time in the Senate, because you speak so movingly about the power of government to help people. And I've heard you say to, to make five Republican friends. Cory Booker takes my seat in the U.S. Senate and yeah. from New Jersey, and he asked me, what should I do? I said, make five Republican friends, real friends. I've heard this story. Yeah. And someday, you know, they'll find a way to help you. And indeed, they did. And, uh, you know, he had a, um, <clears throat> he, did, he did an amendment on homelessness and on uh, foster care. And because he'd gone around to all of the Republicans and met them in, in their offices as human beings, he found in one conservative center from Oklahoma a picture of an adopted child who was African-American. And so he knew he could count them. And so he co-sponsored the amendment, became law, because he had enough respect for the other senator who was conservative to get to know him as a human yeah. being. And later, that common humanity is what connected the two in an effort to make life better for foster kids. And that's the part of the show that I think is going to be challenging for, for some liberal folks, because we, are, we, we, we pride ourselves on opposing racism. And the reality of the world is, and the reality of America is, if you're going to live in this country, you're going to have to interact with people who have these attitudes. One of the raps Joe Biden gets is that in his career in the 70s, he you know worked with these old men who had been segregationists, but he did it to try to use government to work with people whose opinions he just detested to try to make things better for everyone. And I mean, Roger Wicker from Mississippi, your friendship with him was why New York got a tunnel. Yeah, it's Cassie. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's Corey. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's no question about that. I mean, politics can be very brittle, and it's become even more brittle. And that's not life, really. And therefore, we have to deepen and understand the currents that flow through each of us as human beings and identify with the best. I mean, you know, that's what I think. You... Your first big victory is when you talked about eliminating the special interest loophole in the taxes. And and it got me thinking, why is it hard to get so hard to get something like that off the ground? I mean, you say the Tax Reform Act was the day you realized you were no longer a rookie. But it seems like in so many areas, we're not divided as a people. We agree on so many issues and policies, and yet it's so hard to make some of these things happen. Well, we're living in that moment right now. I think that moment will pass. Um, this is an important year, important election in 2024. And um, what I say to people is, you know, think about your own life. Um, think about what you were taught as a kid. And think about whether it was in sports or theater or whatever. And you're taught certain things. You know, if you lose, you congratulate your opponent, whether in politics or in uh, in sports, right? And you, you know, you act not with, you act from honor, not from grievance. And you know that with humility and hard work, excellence can be achieved. And the country needs excellence, just as you and your family need to have your excellence be able to support your family. Yeah. And the more people who feel that and do that, 
the stronger the country will be. And it's those values that are juxtaposed to simply a brittle power and money. That's not life. Power and money is a part of it. But that's not life. Uh, the deeper part is what you learned as a kid, and that's the part that you have to honor. I will never forget when I, uh, the moment when Rodney King was murdered, was, was beaten, and when you pounded the podium, I believe it was 56 times in 81 seconds exactly. in the Senate, so your colleagues would get it. It's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen a senator do. My father was so moved by it, but you say in the show, you, you felt like it didn't make a difference. Yeah, well, um, you know, <clears throat> this is in the film. Yeah. It's one of those moments in the film that I think people uh, will be, react to, shall I say, moved, I hope, uh, angry a little. Um, and yeah, I did this, and I hoped it would make a difference, but it didn't. Uh, those things still happen. That's true. That's what we have to accept. That means you can always do better. I once wrote a book about that. We can all do better. Was the title? <laughs> this is a good example. I, 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 I don't know. I think it. I think it. I also want to believe that it has ripple effects that we'll never know. That good came from what you did. That touched hearts in ways that you'll never know. I mean, that's got to be the essence of public service: yeah. doing deeds for people you'll never meet and no. helping lives you'll you'll never encounter. No, I I um, I believe that you know you're not you're not serving to get praise. You're serving to do a job, and the job is measured in the lives that you've helped. Whether that's helping them with a lost passport, or whether that's uh, getting health care for them when they're elderly, or making sure their kids can go to college. Um, to me, that's what politics is at its best. Do you miss it, serving in the Senate? Uh, I sometimes miss not being in the room when the deal is cut. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I like the negotiation, and I like the compromise. I mean, you, know, you never got everything you wanted, but you did... Um, you did get something, and you moved our collective humanity a few inches forward. And to me, that's what being a legislator is. It's not making a big speech. For example, I was on that's a right. panel not a few years ago with a senator I will not name, but he's still in the Senate. He's a and uh, he's conservative, um, and he uh, had a tendency to talk a lot. And so I said, it, I paused uh, during our interaction and said, "Look." You know, um, if you're going to be really successful in the Senate, he just arrived in the Senate and knew everything. I said, y y your ears are more important than your mouth. Hmm. And that's the answer. You got to listen. You got to be able to listen to the rhythms. What's really important to somebody? What do they really want? What What is their state like? I mean, that's why I do American Journeys. I go all over the country, in part so I get to know the places that sent these people to the Senate. So I would understand what it is to be a Western senator, for example, where water is absolutely critical yes. in everything you do. And I ended up here. I was senator from New Jersey, the chairman of Water and Power in charge of water in 20 Western states. Well, that was a real learning experience for me. It was much different than Missouri or New Jersey, and yet um, it was America. And so it was trying to wrap my arms around the whole country. That was always, for me, the, the joy 
And, uh, you know, as I say in the show, I wanted to know America like I once knew the seams of a basketball. You're very charitable, by the way. There's a couple of senators who are mentioned not by name in this show, and it's kind of fun to look up who <laughs> Senator Bradley might be talking about in the narrative. Oh, you mean? Uh, <laughs> a couple of guys. Yeah. Nuclear suppository, for one. Yeah, right. You're too polite to say their names, but there's a lot of funny moments in this show. Yeah, no, that's the, that's the story. Of the, the, uh, yeah, there are a couple of stories like that. One guy's named the dumbest U.S. senator. Yeah. And then the following week, he called a press conference to, to, to deny it. it. <laughs> I think we got a couple, too, I can think of now that might give him a run for his money. You you filmed this show on West 42nd, a few blocks from where we sit now, five-camera shoot. Now the film is premiering on Max. It's mm -hmm. just beautiful. Do you, do you still want to do the monologue live? Will you still perform this piece? I don't think so. Um, you never say never. But uh, at the end of, I mean, when I did it, the whole point was to, you know, make this a living document that's going to go on forever and I'll travel all around and so forth. Then after COVID, when it was not practical to have theaters all across the country, I decided, well, I'm going to do a film. And I did a film. And it's there. And it's for people to see. And um, it's much easier than going to a theater. I won't say never, but it's a, you know, it's a lot of work to it is. memorize an hour and a half. I can do most of it now, but I probably would skip. But I'll tell you a funny story. Tell me. It's not so funny, but uh, so we decided we're going to do this. At the, where are we going to do it? Well, how about this jewel box theater at Signature Theater mm -hmm. on 42nd Street? Great okay, space. great. I said, well, look. I'm not going to go in there cold and do this. I want to go rehearse in that space uh, at least yep. twice. And so I went in and rehearsed once. Okay, now it's the uh, Friday before the Monday where I'm going to have the opening, right? So I stand up. I get halfway through the, the show, and I forget it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see. Uh, Mike Tolan walking up toward me. He's going to say, well, we'll cut it off now. I said, no, man, you're not going to do that. I got it back. Yeah. And I finished it. And Muscle memory. And afterwards, Frank Oz he came up to me and said, you know, that was the worst rehearsal, dress rehearsal I ever saw in my life. So, But I had to go out the next, you know, the next Monday and do it, which is what I did. And um, four nights in a row. And... Uh, I really was kind of put on my game face, really. Yeah. Very much like sitting in a room alone before I would go out on the stage. It was like being in a like, Nick locker room, just like rehearsing. was like shooting baskets over and over and over and over. And um, so it was a wonderful experience for me with a lot of angels, as I pointed out, along the way. And the rough dress rehearsal usually means a strong opening night. So what is I, I didn't know. All I had to say <laughs> is put that thing out of your mind. <laughs> Honestly, I, I love it. And I said this to you earlier. My 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 wife wasn't going to watch it, came in, saw the first five minutes and could not leave. I cannot wait to show this film to so many people in my family. Well, John, coming from you, that's a huge compliment. And I am deeply grateful. No, this is like this is like, you know, as good as anything Spalding Gray did, but levels of heart that I've never heard from a Broadway solo show or from a politician. What is next for you, Senator? You don't seem to be a person who knows how to take it slow. Well, I have my show on Sirius XM Indeed, called do. American Voices, 
uh, you know, had like 490 shows, over 1,300 interviews, so it's all there. Amazing. I'm going to continue to do that, telling stories about people who are doing, uh, uh, uns- doing unselfish things in their communities, or people who have unusual jobs, or, you know, an interview of my fancy, whether it's Paul Volcker or George Schultz or Bonnie Raitt. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm going to continue to do that. I continue to work at Allen & Company uh, in New York, um, where I've been since... 2001. I have um, um, young companies that I work with, a new company, metabolic disease company that I think could very well have found a cure to diabetes. So, you know, that's going to fill my time. And um, and then I'm thinking about what my next project will be. And you know, I do a Substack yeah. uh, now. I didn't know what Substack was two months ago, <laughs> right? But now I know what it is. And so I'm told I have to write something every week, right? Otherwise, people don't listen. It's a beast. I mean, you got to yeah. feed the beast, right? That's what they say. It's ravenous. I can't go on forever, but I'm going along right now, okay? And I just finished my Substack for next week. It's called Musical Moments. And um, I might expand that. Musical Moments, for example. Please. <laughs> I... Uh, I I played a trumpet from the time I was four, uh, fourth grade, right? I had played the piano, but I didn't like it. I played the piano trumpet. And so now I'm a freshman in high school. And the band director, the band director is the study hall teacher. One day I'm in study hall and he says, would you come over here, Bill? I want to talk to you a minute. He said, Bill, what would you do if you were the coach of a baseball team and you had three shortstops, people who could play good shortstop, but you need a second baseman? What would you do? I said, well, I'd move the shortstop over to second base. And he said, Bill, would you change from trumpet to French horn? (laughs) (laughs) And I did. A musical memory. But so much of your life really is about mastering new disciplines. And that's why that's what this show is about in many ways. And it's amazing to watch you actually do it. You guys can see the Olympic gold medalist, New York Knicks superstar, American senator, become an off-Broadway solo show monologist on Max with Bill Bradley rolling along. It is one of the best things you can view for your soul and tell people you love to watch it too. Senator, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a pleasure to have you. John, thank you so much. I feel like we're soul brothers. Oh man, well my dad was your biggest fan on earth. You have no idea how much that means to me. Thank you so much. 